Well, this week we get a chance to kick off a brand new series, and I'm pretty excited about this message series that will spend the next several weeks. And what we're going to be doing in this message series is answering some of the big questions that many of you have about life. As a matter of fact, what the pastors of our church have done is we compiled a list of the most frequently asked questions that you bring to us, and we put it together in a series called Asking for Free. Maybe you know what it's like to have an awkward question that you want to ask yourself, but maybe don't want to be known as the one who's really processing the question, so you ask for a friend. Well, now we get a chance to help you, and if it is a friend that is processing through a tough question, or if it's you, we want you to be able to have rock-solid answers. But it, it begs a bigger question, and that is, where do you go for answers to life-tough questions? Where do you go for answers to life Stuff's questions. Well, it's interesting. A recent survey was done by the Pew Research Center. Anybody ever heard of Pew before? Uh, They're a research institution. Well, they surveyed 2,800 people around this question where do you go for answers to the big questions of life? And nearly 60% of them said the primary place where they turn for questions on issues like finance or education, governmental issues or relationships is the internet. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a little bit nervous when I hear that because there are certain risks that are built into turning to technology first for answers to life's big questions. And one of the reasons why we do is because we have bought into the false premise of what I would call worldview neutrality, worldview neutrality. And that is the assumption that when you go to a search engine or when you ask Alexa question or Syria question, that they're giving you a neutral answer. As a matter of fact, our kids have been taught that uh, technology is to be trusted, but people you should be suspicious of. I've told this story before, I'll never forget a few years back, my son, now 12, was about seven at the time, and he's the son who asked all the tough questions, and he asked me a question that I knew I had the answer to. He said, Dad, do all dogs shed? Do all dogs shed? Now, normally his questions stumped me, but I was ready for this one, and the answer was no, no, all dogs don't shed. And he looks back at me without blinking the eye and says, I don't believe you, let's ask Siri. And I was so upset. But that was a reflection of his worldview. But the fact of the matter is, is all technology is made by people, and all people have a worldview, and so do we. And this led two Georgetown law professors to produce a study that they called the myth of platform neutrality, where they wrote about this phenomenon. And here's what they say. One quote, it says, the fact is that search engines are most often used to conform, confirm rather, our own biases and simply reflect back to us the collective voices we want to hear instead of actually leading us to truth. So when you go on the search engine, just know that all pages are not equal. They're going to prefer or rank certain pages higher than others to confirm your own biases or to present to you a certain worldview. And so often that worldview is not consistent with the worldview of Scripture. 
It really is just, as these law professors says, echoing back to us the voice of the masses. So if we can't go to technology always for truth, and we can't turn to the masses for truth, where do we go for truth? Well, I thank God for what Jesus said in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. How many thank God for the inerrant, inspired, infallible, eternal word of the living God? This is what makes the Bible so uh, important and significant in the class all by itself. It is because it is not giving us mere opinion of men. It is not echoing to us the shifting cultures, morals, or values of our age, but it is giving us eternal truth. So we're going to look to the Word of God over the next several weeks to answer some big questions. Questions like, how do I share faith with friends who believe differently than me? Maybe an atheist, maybe a part of another religion. How do I do that? Or next week, we're going to take up the question, is anxiety a sin? Is anxiety a sin? But today, we're going to deal with what I believe to be the most important question of all, and that is, who is Jesus? Now, the way that this question often comes to me from our church family is this. Jehovah's Witnesses say they love Jesus. Mormons say they worship Jesus. Muslims say they honor Jesus. Is it all the same Jesus? Or to put another way, who is the real Jesus? So I want to get into that today, and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. And all of this reminds me of something I went through back in the summer of 2016. 2016 was a great year. Um, the leadership of um, Moody Radio had come to me and asked if me and my wife would pray about the possibility of me launching into a national radio program. And after much prayer, we felt the Lord uh, telling us to move forward. And it was pretty quickly apparent that God was gracious and that lives were being touched and impacted. And there's nothing that brings my heart greater joy than to see men and women growing in their knowledge and love and affections for Jesus. And we were seeing that. And just as life often does in the midst of all these great ministry moments, there's something that happens that seems to be a thorn in your side or some spiritual attack from the enemy. And so in the midst of all of this, I get word from Moody Radio that they start getting all of these bills in my name sent to them that were of credit accounts that I didn't open. First, there was a jewelry store bill that came to them, and then there was an auto loan that was taken out in my name that I hadn't authorized. And then someone filed a false unemployment benefits uh, claim. And I said, not only am I working, I'm working two jobs. So I know that wasn't me. And so here I am in the midst of all of this, and I go to the police station to say, somebody's opening up all of these accounts in my name, sending the bills to the radio headquarters. And they said, Mr. Brooks, 
you are the victim of identity theft. And I became aware that millions upon millions of Americans experience this every year. How many have ever been the victim of identity theft before? Anybody ever experienced that? Now, for those of you who have experienced that or understand that concept, you just get a small sense of what Jesus has been experiencing now for centuries. For centuries, there have been many, many religions, philosophies, worldviews that attach themselves to Jesus while redefining who he is and holding on to his name in order to uh, translate that cachet that comes along with the name of Jesus into getting a hearing or an audience with people. But it's important for us to be able to go beyond just the words that people are using to say, what do you mean by that? So when you say Jesus, you worship him, you honor him, you love him, who are you really referring to? Who is the real Jesus? And I think there's no one better to define who Jesus is than Jesus himself. And that's exactly what he does in Matthew's gospel, six, in chapter 16, as we look at verses 13 through 18. And what we're going to discover is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Can I get an amen for that? Now, there's, there's three questions, though, that's asked here. Three questions, one answer that is correct, three questions that are asked, two explicitly, one implicitly. And it says here in verse number 13, the first question, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Let's stop there for just a moment. Before we dig into the text, let me just give you a sense of context for where Matthew 16 falls in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus burst on the scene of the uh, religious movement, if you will, the redemptive movement of God in a time where Israel was desperately longing for redemption and salvation, albeit in their minds, primarily in, in a geopolitical way. And when his ministry starts, it starts in what seems to be relative obscurity, coming from a poor family and the son of a carpenter and this young mother. And many people looked and said, is there anything great about him or didn't take notice about him? But quickly he rose to prominence as his teaching was so profound that people were drawn to him. And then there were the miracles and the signs that he was doing that no one else had ever done among them. And pretty soon, he became a threat. A threat because the people had begun to be enamored by him. They clamored for him. Wherever he went, they followed him. And the religious leaders of that day took notice. And it got to the point where they saw Jesus as a threat, the Pharisees and the Sadducees being the most dominant groups in the religious infrastructure of Jesus' day. And so they devised a plan that they were going to take him out because they did not want to have to compete with his uh, growing 
audience of affection. And so in verse number one of this chapter, we see the ulterior motives that they have because in verse number one of this chapter, it says that they were seeking to test him. They wanted to devise a series of questions that would somehow ensnare him or entrap him so that he might be found guilty of the law of Moses and ultimately they might be able to imprison him or maybe even worse, crucify him. But Jesus knew their motives, he knew their hearts, and he warns his followers to to be aware, beware of them. Look at verse number six of this chapter. He sa- it says here, Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By leaven, he meant the teachings. Their teachings were off because their hearts were off and their attitudes were off. But what chapter 16 represents is the beginning of the march of Jesus to the cross of Calvary. It is beginning to intensify at this point, and it ultimately will culminate in his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection because, after all, he is Lord of all and was in control of it all. But in the midst of all of this, he pulls his disciples aside for this quiet time of fellowship and conversation and teaching. And it's there that he asked them this question in Caesarea Philippi. He says, who do people say that I am? Now, by the verb tense in the original language, it sounds like an ongoing question that he had been asking them. What do the masses say that I am? That if you go to the search engines of your day and type in, who is Jesus? What comes up about me? Now, this is not an inconsequential question. As a matter of fact, if you don't remember anything else I tell you today, and I hope you do, I want you to remember this that this is the most important question in all of your life. This is the question that you have to get right because at least three things are determined by how you respond to this question. The first is your earthly peace. To respond wrong to this question will put you on an unending search for peace in places that ultimately produce not peace but actually death and anxiety and insecurity. If you've ever wondered why people will dump alcohol and drugs in their body, much to their own harm, it's because they're searching for peace. If you ever wonder why people will abuse their body and the bodies of others through surgeries and sexuality, it's because they're looking for peace and they haven't been able to find peace. They are restless. As a matter of fact, as the great church father, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo once said, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. No amount of entertainment, no amount of pleasure will be able to give you earthly peace if you don't answer this question right. But if you do have this question right, you will have a supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding and is able to keep you through the storm. How many thank God for that peace? Amen. But not only your answer to this question determine your peace, it also determines your eternal security. 
Heaven and, and, and hell are weighed in the balance of how you answer this question. We just finished studying Revelation, the book of Revelation, and what we saw was the eternal damnation that waits for those who reject him in chapters 19 and 20, and the eternal blessing or promise for those who accept him and answer the question right. Heaven and hell are weighed in the balance of how you answer this question. Well, not only those two, but also your, your evangelistic passion will be determined by this. There have been many studies done on the anemic evangelism that's happening in the modern day church. One recently done was by Lifeway Research that showed that only one third of American Christians actually share their faith with someone else in spite of the fact of their non-Christian friends saying through polls and studies that they actually would be open if we did share our faith. So what keeps us from sharing our faith is because many of us have not come to the right answer to this question. And what was the answer that they gave? What, what did their search engine results produce? Well, it's interesting to me what it produced. They said, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, yet others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What's interesting to me is that in a word, all of these people were special people. What they're saying is that while there's no consensus, Jesus, on who you are, and by the way, that's true in our day as well, there are a, there's a broad sense that you are someone special. And you would think that Jesus would be flattered by this, that he would appreciate it, that he would celebrate it, but he didn't. Why didn't he? It's because all of these answers were special people, but they fell woefully short of who he was. Think about the list, for example. There was John the Baptist on the list, and it was just a few chapters before this in chapter 11 where Jesus declares that of men born of woman, no one's better than John the Baptist. That's a pretty high compliment. Jesus, some say you might even be him. And then there's Elijah, and if you studied Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4, verse number 3, Elijah said that he's the forerunner. He was predicted to be the one who was going to come before the Messiah came. That's a pretty special person. Some say you might be him. Others say Jeremiah, and it was believed during that, that day by many of the rabbis that the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years earlier had hid the the, the Ark of the Covenant at Mount Nebo and that before the Messiah came that he was going to come back, Jeremiah, and he was going to reveal where the Ark of the Covenant had been hidden and then the Messiah would come. And so that's a pretty special person. Or one of the prophets, and uh, if it was, uh, I think it was Moses, yes, it was Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 who said, there will be one like me, but even greater than me who was to come. So they were looking for some great prophet. All of these people were special, but yet Jesus wasn't looking for some generalized respect. Jesus wasn't and still isn't simply looking for our fandom. He is not simply looking to be generally esteemed among the culture. 
And even in our day, you'll find people who will say, he is a great moral teacher. Anybody ever heard that? That Jesus is a great moral teacher, but he is so much more than that. You go to the bookstore and you might even see, learn from the uh, leadership wisdom of Jesus, the great CEO, but he was so much more than that. Muslims will say that he's a, a great prophet, but is Jesus just a prophet? The answer is no. He is so much more than that. So I urge you, I implore you, don't fall for the shallow answers of what seems to have the veneer of esteem for Jesus without rightly answering the question because close enough is not good enough. Not as it pertains to this answer. Not as it pertains to this question. There are certain questions in life where you have to be pitch perfect. Let me give you an example of this using sports, one of my favorite sources for analogies. There are two types of sports in the world. There are sports of proximity and sports of precision. A sport of proximity gives you points for getting close. A sport of precision only gives you points when you are spot on. A sport of proximity might be horseshoes. By a show of hands, who's played horseshoes before? All right, we've all done it. This is going to go over really well. This is great. So we've played horseshoes before. And how does it work? You don't have to necessarily get the horseshoe around the goal. You just have to be closer than your competition. But then there's golf. Anybody ever played golf before? Maybe you have like me, broken a putting wedge out of, a uh, putter rather, out of frustration before. Maybe you've thrown your driver once or twice because now you have a precision that you have to have, and that is hitting that little ball hundreds of yards into a little hole, and you don't get points or a score till you get that little ball into that little hole. I think God made that in order to punish us for our sin nature. <laughs> right? Now, there's difference there, and so it is in answering this question. It's not good enough for us to say Jesus was a great man, or Jesus was a prophet, or Jesus was just a moral teacher. No, we have to get this question right because, again, so much weighs in the balance. And so Jesus goes from asking the generalized question to personalizing it. And he goes to verse number 15 from asking the first question, who do people say I am, to asking the second question. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? That's the second question. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So beautiful, so powerful, so profound, and so efficient in his words. Jesus personalizes the question because he wants a personal relationship with us. And this, my friends, is unique to Christianity. Jesus is not simply some distant, far off, absentee savior, but he desires intimate relationship with you. I hope you're grateful in knowing that the God of Scripture, the God that we worship, is both transcendent, meaning he's above his creation, and he is imminent, meaning that he is intimately involved in his creation and desires personal relationship with you and me. How many are grateful for that, that we are not just worshiping a Savior whose teachings have been preserved through the annals of history, but we are worshiping the Savior who says, 
come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so he asked the question, now this is a plural you, so he's asking the disciples, his most intimate friends, but as Peter is known for, he speaks up. I don't know if he was the designated spokesman of the group, but he was always the impetuous one who decided that he was going to be the spokesman for the group. Anybody know a Peter out there? Anybody is a Peter out there? If you're sitting next to Peter, don't say amen. They will get you later. But Peter spoke up. But I'm so glad in this case that he did because in this case he got it pitched perfect. He got the ball in the hole. He got this one right. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A two-fold answer. First, Let's camp out here for just a moment because it is the most important place for us to camp out. First, you are the Christ. Now, this is an Old Testament allusion to the promise of the Messiah that was to come again. Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, there is one like unto me, but even greater who will come. Him you must listen to. Moses was the great deliverer, prophet of Israel, and Jesus comes as the deliverer. Not just a deliverer, the deliverer. Israel was longing for a deliverer. He had come to rescue rescue men from their sins. Israel had been waiting for a savior king who they had been told was to come. And Jesus fits the bill. He fits the description of that savior king. Let me just give you a flavor for this in Isaiah chapter 9. Keep your finger there. If you have your apps, go to Isaiah chapter 9. And this is what will most of us be familiar as a Christmas passage in verse number 6. But it's so much more than just a Christmas passage. Look at what Isaiah predicts, what he prophesies, what he says. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus was the promised Savior King of Israel that was coming to save the world. And it was prophesied to them and to, given in the Davidic covenant to King David, the great King of Israel, that there would be a son who would come from his lineage that would sit on his throne in perpetuity forever. And that is why your New Testament in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel has genealogies. And I know these genealogies can get boring as you read one begat another and another begat another. And why am I reading through all of this? It is there as textual evidence, historical evidence, that Jesus comes through the line of David and therefore qualifies to be the long-awaited 
Messiah, Savior, King of Israel. And in one moment, Peter got it right as he looks at Jesus and answers the question, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ. You're the Savior King that all of Israel, yea, all of the world has been waiting for. But he does not stop there, does he? No, he goes on to pronounce that not only are you the Christ, but you are the son of the living God. Friends, this is a title ascribed to Jesus signifying deity. This is a title that signifies divinity. To say that you were the son of the living God was to say that you were God. And you say, Chris, how do you jump to that conclusion? Because... Of Scripture. Turn with me quickly to John chapter 5, verse number 18, and it says these words. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. That's a pretty strong statement. They wanted to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. He was saying that he was the son of God. Going on, it says, making himself equal with God. You see, this statement that he was a son of God was a statement of divinity, that he was more than just a prophet, more than just a savior king in an earthly or geopolitical sense, that he was the long-awaited Messiah he was the second person of the triune Godhead. He was God in flesh. And that's who Peter, in one moment, one powerful statement, declares him to be. And the question that we are confronted with every time we hear the gospel is, who do you say he is? And I hope that you don't fall wo woefully short of the answers like the masses did. You would expect and you are right to expect that Peter's answer would be different than the answers of everyone else. And it was because he knew Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you don't just declare him to be some great guy. If you know Jesus as he truly has revealed himself, you must declare him to be the Christ, the son of the living God. But then the third question that is inferred here is, who does Jesus say he is? And in verse number 17, we see the answer. And Jesus answered him, referring to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oh, verse number 18, so much controversy, so little time. <laughs> but let me start with verse number 17. In verse number 17, coming right off of being declared the Messiah, God in flesh, divine, Jesus not only accepts that statement about himself, but he takes it a step further and says to Peter, you didn't get this from an internet search engine response. You didn't get this from the masses. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And friends, if you're going to get the answer right on who Jesus is, you've got to look beyond the way culture sees him as fitting all of their desires. It's not saying anything exclusive, anything demanding, validating all of our own ethics. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, if you're going to get this right, God has to reveal it. And how does God reveal himself and his will and who Jesus is? Through his word spoken by his servants. And whenever you hear the word of God, harden not your hearts. And today the word of God reveals to us that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we get to verse number 18. And verse number 18, because of Catholicism, so many have been confused about this debate over who is the rock he's referring to. Is it Peter? And I will just say to you, because of time, very succinctly, it is not Peter that is the rock. Uh, as some would argue, the first bishop of Rome, apostolic succession, the victor of Christ. No, this is not Christ is not building his, his church on Peter, and we need to praise God for that. The centerpiece of this uh, conversation is not on Peter. Peter is not the centerpiece or the focus of the conversation. Jesus is. It is Peter's confession that is the rock. It is Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that becomes the foundation upon which the church is built. And we need to praise God for that because in just a few verses, Peter is going to put his foot in his mouth and Jesus is going to have to say, get thee behind me, Satan. If you've ever wondered how can a person go from sounding godly to, to devilish, just look at Peter and look at yourself. We all are guilty of it. But what is profound was what he said, and that is that he is the Christ. So all the debate on who the rock is will cause you to miss the I and the my in this verse. That I will build my church. And if you're going to be a part of the church of Christ, if you're going to know the Prince of Peace, if you're going to know the Savior of the world, then today you too have to declare him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. I invite you to stand with me all over this church today. Who is Jesus? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a good guy? Is he one of many religious figures that is worthy of your affiliation or commitment? The answer is no. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only way to peace. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if today you have not yet given your life to him, I pray that you will. I pray that you will respond to the gospel today and that you will say, Lord, save me. Be my Savior and Lord. And how many in here have made the decision and thank God that you did? Amen. And for those who have, I pray that we will tell the world this good news that the Messiah has come because Jesus has come. Let's pray together.